Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read a couple verses here. A famous song, the Magnificat, that many of you may know by heart. You've heard it in church growing up. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. But I want to read this to us again, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. Hear these words in a fresh way this morning. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her cousin Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as many of you know, um, I have four children. So I have a 14-year-old boy, a 13-year-old boy, so two teenagers now. Um, I have an 11-year-old daughter who's here in the room, and I have a 9-year-old daughter. And uh, because I have two daughters, one of the beautiful things that I've, I've come to embrace about having daughters is that um, our home is always filled with singing and dancing musical style, okay? So I've become intimately acquainted with every line of every major Broadway and Disney production and musical written over the last 11 years. And so my home is constantly filled with, uh, you know, words from Hamilton being sung out at all hours of day and night. Uh, I've, I've heard every line of the, of the show Descendants sung out, right? I've, I've heard uh, about Le, uh, like Les Mis. We, we sing uh, and have learned about the revolution uh, in Paris through a totally different lens, through the eyes of, of, of kids and through the eyes of, and the hearts of the poor in those songs. And there's always singing. One of, the, one of the things I love about the singing in our home is it doesn't take but a spark for the Schuyler sisters to all of a sudden be sung about passionately. Angelica, right? Like if you know the song, it's very catchy. And it doesn't take much. It, it just takes a little spark, a little something, a little flicker, a word association. All of a sudden we're right in the middle of dancing in the kitchen, uh, you know, right after dinner or during dinner. To the chagrin of my teenage boys, by the way, right? Like they, they do not enjoy that as much as their mother and I most of the time enjoy it, right? It's like, oh, do we have to do this again? Can you please stop? But when something captures your imagination, you can't help but sing, right? Like one of the ways that I've learned to grow as an adult in my Christianity is realizing how much of an aversion I had growing up to singing. I, I, I'm not a very joyful person by, by nature, right? I prefer the darker side of, of life. I prefer the more intellectual, cerebral side, the academic side of life, And my daughters have taught me that when something good gets into your soul, you don't just uh, like theologize about it. You don't just speculate about it. You let it hit you in your soul and then you burst into song. And that's actually 
what it means to be a healthy disciple of Jesus. What we see here in these songs that we're going through in Advent, we looked a couple of weeks ago at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Last week we looked at the shepherds. This week we'll look at Mary. And next week we'll look at Simeon. These are songs. They're musicals meant to touch us emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, to move our bodies as they would have done these people. These are written uh, in the style of poetry, like, like the great psalmist many generations ago that these people would have been familiar with. You see contained in here the echoes of songs from generations past, from the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, the Psalms themselves, the wisdom literature from the Old Testament. And that's what we have here with Mary. It's, it's a song of something happening inside of her, something being birthed inside of her that needs to be birthed inside of us. Now, what's happening to Mary, Mary is happening physically, but spiritually, it needs to also happen to us. Emotionally, it needs to happen to us. We need to learn to sing the song of Mary. The song of Mary, I want us to see today uh, in two things, two parts. I want us to see it's a song about mercy, And something we often overlook in this passage is it's also a song about justice. It's a song about mercy, and it's a song about justice. Now, let me give you a little background on the Magnificat. The word Magnificat, you may have heard of that in church, it comes from the Latin word for magnify, the first word here in Mary's song. And and we know the story, many of us, most of us know the story of Mary. We we often misunderstand Mary. Right? I find that whether you're Protestant or Catholic growing up in the church, we don't often know what to do with Mary. Some of us venerate Mary and we push her and elevate her beyond what the text does. And some of us denigrate Mary and we push her beneath what the text does. And, and Mary in plays, I remember growing up, I didn't grow up in the church, but I, I started going to church as a teenager. And I remember watching the plays uh, about the, the birth narrative of, of Christ. And Mary was always presented as this meek and mild and kind of submissive and quiet and maybe contemplative, you know, kind of, kind of woman. The kind of woman who doesn't really get riled up about anything, doesn't get angry about anything, doesn't yell out about anything. Kind of a domesticated Mary. But that's not actually what we see in this passage. We see a Mary, I love this, uh, Lily, if you'll show that slide, the, the, this, uh, this piece of art that somebody did in reflecting on this passage, I love this vision actually of Mary right here. Mary the activist. <laughs> Mary with her fist raised in the air. These are direct quotes from this passage. Cast down the mighty, send the rich away, fill the hungry, lift up the lowly. Now that's a Mary you're not going to see represented in a lot of Christmas pageants. But this is a Mary full of the mercy of God and the justice of God crying out and singing about it. Mary was a person who knew what it was like to experience being lowly. Mary was a teenager. This blows my mind. I mean, I have teenagers. Like, this blows my mind. She was probably 15 or 16 years old here, maybe maybe as young as 13. She was a woman, right, which meant in that day she couldn't vote. She had no rights in court. She was basically treated just above a slave. She was poor. She talks about her humble estate. That's not moral humility. She's talking about literally her socioeconomic status. She is poor. She's from a humble estate. She grew up in a small town, just a stone's throw away from a major imperial 
trading route. She grew up literally not in some hick town out in the, you know, no offense, like out in northeastern Indiana or southern Indiana. She grew up literally in the shadow of the empire. She would have seen armies come through. She would have seen the Roman military pass by her house just an hour away. God comes to Mary earlier in this chapter in the, what we call the Annunciation through the angel Gabriel, and he interrupts Mary. This is what God does. He disrupts. Have you ever been interrupted by God? Your life is going one direction. I mean, Mary is on a trajectory to get married to an upstanding man named Joseph. She'd already, you know, booked the wedding venue, so to speak, right? She had, she had created the hashtag, and she had, you know, registered for all the gifts. They were beginning to throw her, you know, wedding showers, And then God shows up through the prophet Gabriel and says, hey, you're going to get pregnant, by the way. And it's not gonna be by a man. You're gonna get impregnated by the Holy Spirit and you're gonna give birth to the Messiah, the son of David. Imagine having to explain that like on social media. I'm pregnant and the father is the Holy Spirit. Imagine explaining that to your parents, to your friends. It was just as much of a scandal then as it was now. Like it was just as hard to believe then. Don't buy into the lie that these are gullible people who don't understand how babies are born. They understood very well how babies were born. And that's why Mary's response, she was greatly troubled. Like that's the understatement of the Bible. (laughs) Anxious, distressed, despairing maybe a bit. But she says, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. It was just a scandalous and impossible to believe then as it is now. That's why Joseph tried to, tries to quietly call off the marriage. Because he knows what kind of reputation you get when you're in a small town and you have a baby outside of marriage. By Jewish law, Mary could have been stoned. That rarely happened. But in a small religious town, this scandal would have maybe not meant physical death, but certainly social death economic death, psychological death, you'd be the person with the scarlet letter for forever. It could have even opened her up to abuse because she couldn't find a husband. She had the stain. And yet Mary responds with this holy submission. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth they're both pregnant in a very unlikely way. We, we read this story of Elizabeth, and it's really interesting. R.T. France, a scholar, uh, has noted this very poetically. He says, one is old and has no children. The other is young and has no husband, but supernaturally both are pregnant. See, sometimes, this is a side note, sometimes we need community to help us discern what God's doing in our lives. Mary doesn't sing this song until after she goes to see Elizabeth. She begins to tell Elizabeth about what the angel had said, and Elizabeth says, yes, that's exactly what God's doing. And it's confirmed by, in her own womb, the Holy Spirit touching John the Baptist, and John leaps for joy. And this confirmation of what God's doing then evokes this song. Like sometimes it's confirming things in community. It's, it's discerning the will of God in community that allows us to sing in the way that Mary sings. And this song is so spectacular. Like, it is so amazing. It is so, as many have noted, revolutionary. This is a song of revolution. This is not just uh, a sentimental Christmas song. 
this is a revolutionary, I mean, like I'm, I'm amazed like at Christmas time when I, when I begin to hear, like last night we were here for two and a half hours. Uh, there's light show that goes on here. And I was amazed listening to uh, some of the songs here as we were driving around and how explicitly unsentimental they are when you really begin to, to hear and to, and to reflect on what's happening in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's very unsentimental. I'm like, I can't believe they're playing this on the Disney Channel. I can't believe they're playing this and blaring this out, maybe only in Indiana. Okay, if we were in San Francisco, probably not playing some of the songs they were playing last night. But nonetheless, it's not sentimental. It's in your face. It's revolutionary. And if we allow these words to touch us as they touched Mary, as they touched Elizabeth, as they touched the early Christian community, we, like Mary, can allow ourselves to be blessed so that we can become a blessing to the world. We can sing with Mary this revolutionary song, a song uh, in the spirit of kind of a lay mis, a song of freedom, a song of joy, a song of hopefulness in a world that's cynical, a song of peace in a world that's anxious. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the radical German pastor and martyr, uh, said it. He says, the Magnificat is the most passionate. I mean, it's a pretty astounding claim. The most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. N.T. Wright, likewise, the New Testament scholar, says, the Magnificat is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. It's been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight, set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's the gospel before the gospel, a fierce, bright shout of triumph, 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It's all about God, and it is all about God's revolution. So let me just hit on the two things that I want you to see from this passage. This is a song of revolution, and it's a song of mercy, and it's a song of justice. Mercy it is, is kind of speaking to the spiritual revolution, and justice is speaking to the sociopolitical revolution that Mary's singing about. So let's start with mercy. Mary says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This, this word magnifies, the Greek word megaluno. She's magnifying. It's to take something that is big, but imagine something that's far away and seems distant, and to make it big in the eyes of others in the way that it actually is. It's like uh, one pastor compares it to like the difference between a microscope and a telescope. A microscope takes something small and blows it up. A telescope takes something big and brings it near. This is telescopic. Taking something like the glory of God, the mercy of God, the holiness of God, which is big and, and kind of illuminates our lives, but we often can't see it. It's hidden, except for those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear. It's every bit as real as what we can sense with touch and taste and smell. But we often miss it because it's sometimes silent. And Mary says, my soul magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's rejoicing and magnifying in God's mercy. This is uh, this parallelism. This is the poetic aspect here. It's, it means the same thing. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It, it's repetition. It's for emphasis. What she's saying is, deep in the core of my being, I've had a life-transforming encounter with God's presence and power. 
what was intellectually true. Mary's grown up within a covenant community that worships God. She's saying, what, what's intellectually true has dropped down into my heart and it's gone radioactive and it's just causing me to burst out in praise. Something has shifted in the core of my being. My soul and my spirit is just saying, all that's in me, all that's in my body, like my whole body, my whole person is on fire with this truth. My inner life has been shaken. And it's being recentered again in a new and fresh way on God's mercy. And, and this is where I think uh, we often get it wrong with Mary. Like both Protestants and Catholics get Mary wrong. You see, clearly here, Mary says, from, from behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. That word blessed is the same word that Jesus, and I wonder if he gets it from his mother, uses in the Sermon on the Mount in just a few chapters. Blessed are you when? Makarios, flourishing, happy are you, joyful are you. See, God's blessing and favor is on her in a special way. She is the first, have you ever thought about this? Mary is the first disciple of Jesus. She's the first one to hear the good news from God himself and respond with trust to the impossible, right? To the impossible. Mary says, let it be to me according to where I give you my body, God, literally my womb. I give you my future. I give you my present. Despite the fact that all my friends, my neighbors are gonna scorn me, laugh at me, mock me, maybe even abuse me, I give you everything. She's, she is a pattern and a template for what it means to live as a favored one. She's not favored because there's anything intrinsically meritorious inside of her. As a matter of fact, when the, when the angel comes to her, he says, you have found favor with God because the Lord is with you. That's what makes Mary blessed, is that God is with her. Not that there's something that God sees in her and rewards. We too... I think especially as Protestants, need to be able to see the blessing of Mary. We often denigrate Mary. We, we, we dismiss Mary. We ignore Mary to our own peril. But notice that she also calls God her Savior. <laughs> she says, my God, my Savior. Acknowledging she too, even though she's poor and even though she is oppressed in many ways, she's still a sinner who needs a Savior. Right? And so, where Catholics maybe get that wrong is in venerating Mary and calling her, you know, kind of eternally without sin. We said, no, she acknowledges that Jesus has come, as she says earlier in the chapter, to take away the sins of the world, starting with her. She's rejoicing in his mercy. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty, she says, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And two times in this passage, she magnifies his mercy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy. What a great word. What a great concept. What a great reality. It's one of the first ways God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as a merciful God. Mercy is this word elias. It's a combination of Hebrew words like uh, hesed, and rachamim, that, that it's kind of this cluster of words. We use the word mercy, and we, like, if you ever played sports, we talk about, like, the mercy rule. One team's just getting beat up. We're like, all right, they've had enough. Like, let's take them out from underneath this pain. That's one version of mercy. If you ever play that game where you lock hands with your kids or the friend, and you, and you try to see who can get the other person to say mercy first, and we say, mercy! 
That's not exactly what the Bible means by mercy. There's something deeper happening here. We talk about mercy as, kind of in the language of Isaiah 63, where Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That's mercy. Mercy is God's chesed, his steadfast love towards us, his covenant love towards his people. It speaks of God's empathy, his compassion. He's not forgotten about us, his loyalty to us. That's mercy. God never gives up on us. Steadfast love, relentless love, mercy towards us. And this this is what Mary's rejoicing after 400 years of silence following the exile of God's people and God's presence, leaving the temple, one of the saddest days in the history of Israel. It's been 2,000 years since God's promise to Abraham. And you have to think that people are beginning to wonder, has God forgotten about us? You see that all throughout the Psalms. Have you forgotten about us? Have you abandoned us? How long, O Lord? You feel that way ever, now? How long, O Lord? Have you forgotten about us? Are you gonna fulfill your promises to us? And what Mary is magnifying here is that he who is mighty, powerful, all authority, he who is holy, sinless, pure, the very definition of wholeness, he has not forgotten her in her humble estate, but he has chosen to reveal himself to her. He has chosen to lift her up and to show her compassion, to show her mercy, to show her steadfast love in the coming of Jesus, her Savior, and her liberator, and her Redeemer. The very same creative spirit who hovered over creation in Genesis chapter one, the very energy and life and power of God himself, the Annunciation says, will overshadow her. Literally, it will come into her womb and join Adam's seed with the divine life of God himself, and it will rest on her and remain on her for the entirety of her life. This is how God works in our lives in his mercies. He uses his power, he uses his holiness in service of our flourishing. He hasn't forgotten about us in our humble estate, in our spiritual poverty or our material poverty, in our restlessness and our anxiety and our worry and our despair. He's not forgotten about us. He's not silent. He hasn't turned us over to evil. God works in mysterious ways, but he comes in Jesus, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to surround our lives. N.T. Wright goes on to say, Mary is the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable in any other way. And this is good news, right? Like in a world that operates on the framework of merit, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for God lately? Have you been faithful in reading your Bible and praying? Like there's a religious version of that. There's a secular version of that. This is not the way that God works. God's choice, God's choosing, his his revealing himself and his mercy operates on the basis of his compassion. He chooses the weakest. He chooses the most insignificant, the most undervalued, the underdog. Like imagine God like a private equity firm that comes in to buy an underperforming company. 
Now, what would you do if you were, you're, some of you are in private equity, you're in financial investments, what do you do with an underperforming management team? Fire them, right? And you bring in a competent, talented team. Thank goodness God doesn't operate like that with us. God acquires, you know, our company, so to speak, and rather than firing us, he draws us near. And he says, you, underperforming failure, you, spiritually, materially, another other way, desperate, you are going to become the foundation of my kingdom. By repentance and faith, you now become a prototype of the way that I work in the world through my mercy and compassion. I mean, this is so significant, specifically for those who are legitimately on the bottom of society. Those of us who feel like we're at the bottom and we don't matter because the world tells us on the basis of merit and performance, it says to the poor, it says to the insignificant, to the oppressed, you don't matter. It does nothing but tell them you don't matter. You don't have the right connections. You didn't grow up in the right family. You don't have the right skin color. You don't have the right education. You don't have the right moral kind of righteousness. And Mary, I think, is rejoicing here in the fact that God doesn't operate and cater on the basis of power, on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of her net worth, but rather he turns his attention towards the powerless and he shows them favor. That is the spectacular mercy of God. And what's true materially of Mary is true spiritually of all of us. That's why Jesus, again, I have to think he learned this from Mary, goes on to say, blessed are the poor, later on in Luke. Mary means the socially poor and the spiritually poor. Both meanings are in mind with Luke. Now, so the question I have for us as we just kind of move to justice real quickly is, are you rejoicing in God's mercy? Are you rejoicing as Mary, hearing this good news? Do you see your own poverty? Do you see your own humble estate? Do you see God's compassion towards you in Jesus? This is the pattern for every disciple who comes after Mary. It's not just intellectual. It has to drop into your soul and become something that gives birth to something fresh in you. That's what God is doing in Advent, is he wants to take that knowledge that's up here and drop it into here. My soul magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in his salvation. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon says this, old Baptist pastor from the 19th century in London. He says, we can enter into this, and what's happening here physically with Mary should be happening to us spiritually. Blessed among women was she, he says, and highly favored of the Lord, but we can enjoy the same favor. Nay, we must enjoy it, or the coming of a Savior will be of no avail to us. Christ on Calvary, I know, takes away the sin of his people, but none have ever known the virtue of Christ upon the cross unless, I love this line, unless they had the Lord Jesus formed in them as the hope of glory, birthed in them as the hope of glory. Oh, you can never know the joy of Mary unless Christ becomes truly and really yours. But oh, when he is yours, yours within, reigning in your heart, Yours controlling all your passions, your desires. Yours changing your nature, subduing your corruptions, inspiring you with hallowed emotions. Yours within a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, then you can sing, he says. You must sing. Who can restrain your tongue? If all the scoffers and mockers upon earth should bid you hold your peace, you must sing for your spirit must rejoice in God, your Savior. Do you feel that way about the mercy of God? If not, why? Why? We must sing with Mary. 
God is so gracious. He's so compassionate. And he's full of justice. What's, what's, is we, we often miss this in focusing on the first half of this chapter, this first half of the song, is we focus on Mary's piety only, her response to God personally and the mercy of God. But we often miss the second half, which might have been more revolutionary in Mary's day than the first. Not just that God comes and he reveals himself to people and he, and he saves his people, but what's as revolutionary, at least as revolutionary, is the kind of the sociopolitical implications of what Mary's talking about here. And it only makes sense if you read this passage against the backdrop of Rome's political oppression of the Jews. What was actually happening within Mary's eyesight if she, as she's singing the song, she looks out to the horizon, this would have been her reality, right? Like, this is what Luke is drawing our attention to. Luke, who's a physician, wrote this as a Gentile, two other Gentiles, a guy named Theophilus, who we think was some kind of political operative or something within the administration of Rome. He says, I write these things to you, O Theophilus, so that you may have certainty believing the things that happen according to Jesus. And he interviews these eyewitnesses, including Mary. This is a historical account about what was happening in Rome in that moment. Nazareth is a small town of about 200 people, about an hour's walk from the district capital, the former district capital of Galilee, and located near this major imperial trade route. Mary grew up in the shadow of the empire, seeing Rome as an occupying force, enslaving people, exploiting people. She grew up witnessing state-sponsored violence and brutality on a regular basis. Those who were supposed to serve and protect, denigrating, dehumanizing, brutalizing people for profit. This is the empire in Mary's day. And especially a guy named Herod, who I, I know has to be in Mary's mind as she's talking about the mighty being toppled. Herod the Great was especially brutal. He assassinated members of his own family out of pure paranoia and rivalry for fun. He was known for his greed and his violence. His children, his sons, which would rule after him, one of them who Jesus called a fox, continue this legacy of exploitation and violence. And so when Mary cries out and she says this, these, these spectacular words in verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He sent the rich away empty and he's filled the hunger with good things. This is not just abstract. This is meant to be read as a direct subversive call for the toppling of unjust governors and kings and an unjust empire. This is a subversive cry, a radical cry for justice, as one who's calling out from the bottom of society, as one who believed as Elizabeth did, and all Israelites would have, in this shared dream. They believed that they were inheritors of a shared dream of the kingdom of God. That's what the angel Gabriel came and said. There is a kingdom coming. The son of David is going to sit on his throne. So they believed in this dream that God, the king of the universe, would come. He had come, as he'd come in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, as he'd come in the, in the return from exile, as he was coming right now, he would come and he would bring his government of shalom. He would bring a government of justice and love and peace into the world through a Messiah who was born into the family of Abraham that would bless the nations a world, justice just simply means the world made new. All injustices, all wrongs made right. Shalom, this is the rich Hebrew word 
which we translate peace, but means fulfillment, fullness, wholeness, integrity. And Mary knew that kind of thing only happens as a person intimately acquainted with the brutality of the Roman Empire. That only happens if the reigning power structures that keep the world in slavery are brought down. And that was the hope that Jesus would be this political ruler who would bring down and topple and overturn and overthrow unjust rulers like Herod, like Caesar Augustus, like Herod's sons. And that's why she appeals to the arm of God, the arm of the Lord. That's not like random language. That's it's a deeply prophetic phrase that goes back to Isaiah. It goes back even further. Isaiah is an echo to the Exodus. God is the liberator of his people who sees, who hears the cries of the oppressed, and he does something about it. He delivers them from slavery. It's a call for the end of slavery. Isaiah 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, not the person Rahab, but geographic area, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? You see, this is a prophecy about the great reversal. As God liberated his people, Isaiah cries out for God to do it again. Mary, in that same prophetic tradition, cries out for God to do it again. God, would you take the lowly? God, would you take the humble? Would you take those society disregards, devalues, dehumanizes? Would you lift them up? Would you topple those who are prideful and arrogant and who think they control everything, who think they can see around every corner, who think because of their wealth and because of their power and because of their limited, finite authority that they have the right to dehumanize people made in the image of God? Would you take them and lift them up? Make them prototypes for your new kingdom? Would you scatter the proud, bring down the mighty, exalt the humble, fill the hungry, send away the rich, empty See, Mary is prophesying here. She is confident that God will do here what he did in the Exodus again. Herod will be dethroned. Jesus will be enthroned. Herod knew this, and that's why in Matthew chapter 2, he launched a violent campaign of infanticide and genocide because Herod knew when reversals come, those in power doesn't go well for them. So he tries to preempt God's activity with his own violence he knows he's going to be judged. That's why the Magnificat is such a dangerous song. It's a dangerous song. It's, it's dangerous to people in power. It's dangerous to the ruling principalities and powers, both spiritual and physical, which oppress people. And that's why some countries like India and Guatemala and Argentina have outright banned the Magnificat, literally banned it from being sung about in liturgy or in public in generations past because they know the danger of a song like this to upset the status quo. So Mary's song is this kind of song of political subversion. She could have been tried for subversion had she sung this out in the streets with the peasants. I think Mary is a great example of what Jesus later goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We often translate it righteousness, but the word there can be translated also in other traditions it's translated justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they're two sides of the same coin, for justice, for they will be what? Filled. 
Where do you think Jesus heard that? Sung over him in his crib. Lived out in front of him in his mother's life, embodied. Issa Macaulay, an African-American scholar, in his great book, Reading While Black, that just came out, talking about the African-American tradition of reading this passage, says this, what is the testimony of Mary? The testimony of Mary is that even in the shadow of the empire, there is a space for hope, and that sometimes in that space, God calls us from the shadows to join him in his great work of salvation and liberation. It's an invitation to join God in his work of redemption in the world, his work of justice in the world. And what Mary teaches us is what the inner life of a person who is engaged in that work has to look like in order to sustain that work. It has to be filled with hope. It has to come from a place of worshiping God, not just wanting justice for justice's sake and liberation for liberation's sake, but liberation that has its end, worshiping God and enjoying the freedom of being the children of God. And that is so important for us in this season. Because, man, I don't know about you, but there is a real temptation. I mean, my Instagram feed blowing up again this week with more injustice happening around the world. I mean, it's like relentless. Social media has just brought this stuff like into our lives on an unstoppable basis. There's a temptation to despair when I, when I read this and I think, yes, I want the mighty to be brought down from their thrones. I want the humble to be lifted up. I want God's kingdom to come, as Jesus says, his will to be done. But I look out into the world and I see injustice. I look into my own heart, frankly, and I see injustice. I hate it in myself first when I'm in a, on a good day before I hate it in the world. I mean, I think about just the last year and how much injustice we've experienced, how much has been revealed in COVID-19 Right? We have a history of violence and discrimination and dehumanization as a country, right? of black and brown lives and bodies, and the ongoing impact of that in terms of generational trauma, the growing wealth gaps, racialized violence, the limited access to health care, that has all led to this group of the working class and lower class and the poor who can't work remotely, who don't have choices and options, and are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. I think about nursing homes that have been ravaged with death, the most vulnerable among us, while we continue to live our lives, myself, in security and ease and working remotely. People in nursing homes are dying. 30, 40, 50% of COVID deaths have been in nursing homes. Out of sight, out of mind. I think about our Chinese and Asian brothers and sisters being blamed for the pandemic who are in this body who literally are scared to go out to the store in our community because they're being called all kinds of names and literally threatened. Think about the refugee children separated from their families at our border. Some of them being cared for right now in our body. We see all of this and so much more. And it's easy to get to a place of despair. When I look back on the history of the black church, the African-American church, when I look back on the history of the Latino church, Hispanic church, some of these groups that have been historically marginalized. I, I think of this, um, I, I just, I, I don't know how, how you do it. How do you not despair? How do you not just hate the world? Even as a Christian. I think about this, this uh, speech that's given every year by fifth graders in my children's school. I'd never heard of this speech. I grew up in the South, Christian school um, from kind of teenage years on. 
and you had never heard of this, this speech, you may have heard of it now. Many of us have. It's called, What is a Slave to the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass. It's a speech not so much against America. It is against America, but it's really a speech against the church and the church's role in what happened in slavery. And Frederick Douglass says this in one portion, what to the American slave, reflecting on the 4th of July, is one example, is your 4th of July. I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty which, to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. And here it is to the church. Your, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. And here, and I hope you hear the pain in that. The temptation to despair when we look at a world full of injustice, much of that happening in the church. And I think of Fannie Lou Hamer, and I think about other civil rights movement leaders, and I think about human trafficking happening around the world, and I think about this in so many different spheres, and I say, how do you not despair? And the hope that carried these men and women is the same hope that carried Mary. It's a hope that comes through pondering the goodness of God. A hope that is rooted in discovering the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came into the world, that he suffered under poverty, that same poverty that Mary lived in. Jesus entered into that. He identified with that. He lived as a poor man. He was raised in the shadow of that same empire, critiquing and resisting, but also ultimately submitting and laying down his life dying in the most unjust, trumped-up trial that you could ever imagine. Jesus comes and he enters in. And there's this promise given to Mary that hope is on the way, that God, as he liberated your ancestors, he's going to liberate you. And it says in chapter 2 that when the, when the shepherds sang out and they came and they shared this good news with Mary, it says she pondered these things in her heart. That is where hope comes from. It comes through pondering. It comes through remembering. Mary's song here is saturated with God's past acts of faithfulness and deliverance. She's remembering the promises of Abraham. She's remembering scriptural promises and the covenants. Twelve different, at least twelve different Old Testament passages are cited here in Mary. She was immersed in the narrative of scripture. She'd internalized that and she knew that she didn't have to invent some fantasy world in the future where justice comes. She knew because she knew that there had been a God who entered into history in the past and liberated his people. That same God of the Exodus sees her. He knows her. He hears the cries. And he sends Jesus to bring the kingdom. That's what we have to do as well to maintain hope. Pondering is an act of resistance because it refuses to relinquish a vision for the future rooted in the past to what we can see with our eyes right now. That's pondering. It takes all the rage, all the bitterness, all the hopelessness, all the despair, all the apathy that's created through injustice, and it holds it until God transforms it. It looks at it in light of the past and looks to the future. 
And instead of passing that on and transmitting that to others, it's transformed in forgiveness and love and hopefulness. And yes, it involves suffering. All justice does. Simeon goes on to tell Mary, you too are going to have your soul pierced. You're going to experience suffering. And this Messiah, this liberator, is not going to come right now as a political hero like you think he is. He is going to come and he's going to suffer. Justice always comes at a cost. And Mary would experience that cost. It comes through a suffering Messiah. It comes through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the pouring out of his spirit on his church who would live in the way of Jesus. This is the justice that Luke goes on to write about through the rest of this book, how Jesus comes to fulfill these longings and aches. The spirit of the Lord is on Jesus. He preaches the good news to the poor. He says, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus brings down the mighty through his death and resurrection, and we as his church bear witness to this coming social, spiritual, political kingdom of God by preaching this good news and living it out by faith. We desperately need the mercy of God to accomplish the justice of God, to come to us as we are weary, to come to us as we are hopeless and despairing, and to ponder that truth, to ponder what God has done in the past as we look to the future. Let's just let's take a moment and let's pray. We'll take communion together and we'll prepare to sing this last song and send you out. I want us just to think about the mercy of God. Have you experienced the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? His compassion, his love, his steadfast loyalty towards you. Does it make you sing? Does it, does it hit you, not just at an intellectual level, but in the heart, cause you to cry out with praise and worship? My soul and my spirit rejoice. Do you, do you feel that today in your soul? Do you ponder the justice of God? Do you see God, as you look into the future, toppling the mighty? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for how you live your life? How does that fill you with a sense of hopefulness in the midst of the temptations towards cynicism and despair? This is why Jesus came into the world, to show us the mercy of God, to bring the justice of God. There is no justice without Jesus. Only Jesus brings justice, and he does it in his way, in his timing, but he always delivers. What he has done, he will do again. And so as we come to communion, we come to remember that good news. We come to celebrate that good news. We come to receive that good news by faith. So I want to invite you as you're preparing yourself for communion, I want to pray over us. Just put your trust in him. Put your hope in him. Again, freshly, he invites you. Experience his mercy. Participate in his justice. Pray for and work for his justice to come into the world. Let that be the source and the strength of our lives as disciples of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're gonna invite you not to take communion as others come. But if you are, let's take this in as good news again and let's sing together in response to the presence and the power of God come in Christ Jesus revealed through a poor, insignificant teenage girl in the Middle East. This revolution of the soul, this revolution of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this good news that we have been recipients of your mercy, that you've come to us. As you came to Mary, you still visit us. By the power of your spirit, you speak, you work. You invite us to experience mercy, to see our sinfulness, to see our humble estate in every way, 
to acknowledge our dependence and to, to cry out to you, to worship you, to respond in faith and joy and hopefulness. God, do that work supernaturally again in us right now. May Christ, as, as we said earlier, be formed in us. Would you give birth to something new and fresh in us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.